following audio is from a sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah begin with the people of God in Babylonian exile due to their unfaithfulness. The God of heaven, who is faithful to his promises, then stirs up and empowers his people to walk anew in faithfulness and rebuild the ruins. For more information about Sacred City Moline, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 6, 13 through 18. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tetaniah, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozaniah, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders and the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. This is the word of the Lord. What happens after you, after you accomplish something huge? What happens after you achieve a major accomplishment? Maybe you've hit honor roll for the first time. You've been striving for a long, long time, working long hours in the books, doing all the study work. You get to, you get to that. You finally see your name in the paper. Ha, 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 honor roll. Or you graduate. You go on and get your bachelor's, your master's, your PhD, like all those things. That you finally make this, this huge accomplishment. Or in this market where you're looking to buy a new home, you put in like six, seven, eight, nine different offers on houses, and they, every time you get outbid or something that just happens a little bit too slow, and finally after weeks and months of trying to find a house, boom, you got it. Or, or something even as simple as making around the sun one more time. You celebrate your birthday, you did it. Pretty big accomplishment. What happens? What happens when we achieve these major accomplishments? You celebrate, right? You celebrate. You, you roast the hog, bust out the, the barley sodas. You, you get those noisemakers, and by golly, we're going we're gonna to karaoke. Right, that's what we do. We, we have this response in us. When something great happens, we're inclined to celebrate us. Now, if we have a Christian filter, if we look at the world through Christian eyes, we know that this is the joy of God's past kindness to us erupting in us, compelling us to throw a party. Now, this might sound weird since Christians tend to get labeled as 
stuffy, tightly wound, right? They're the ones that sit in the corner that are always sulking, that seem to have a hard time being joyful about stuff. I don't know why that's the case. I don't know why that's the case because God is the one who invented celebration. In fact, you could say that creation is a product of God celebrating the Trinity in and of himself. He invented celebrations. And part of embodying God, carrying the Imago Dei with us, is that we too celebrate, that we rejoice in what is good. We approve that which is excellent. And this is one of the rhythms that we have at Sacred City. This is part of our family life that we live out. We celebrate as often as there is a reason to celebrate. Now, if you're not being lazy, there's a lot of reasons you can find to celebrate, right? Big things, little things, promotion at work, you, you experience this breakthrough, a spiritual breakthrough, some sort of foothold got broken, you experience some liberation, your, your kid gets baptized, you know your neighbor comes to faith. There's all kinds of things that we can be celebrating in our, in our life, our family life at Sacred City. And I think this is a marker of a gospel culture. See, I, th- I think it's easy to say, where there is a lack of celebration, there's a lack of gospel understanding. And so at Sacred City, one of the things that I hope that we are is like the most joyful church in the city. I want to be the church that's known for partying the hardest. Yeah, because we keep going deeper and deeper into the gospel. That we, that's part of us. That's part of who we are, that we worship hard for the glory of Jesus. Now, today we come up on a passage in Ezra chapter 6, that, that reflects this. It's a big old party. They've, they've accomplished this huge milestone. We see this in verse 13 and 15 that was read, we spent time talking about last week, and Steph read it for us here. But after 20 plus years of this huge building project, where God had sent his people out of Babylonian captivity back to Jerusalem to rebuild a house for the Lord, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem after it had been laid waste, they have finally finished the temple. Now, they got, got a bit sidetracked along the way, but God was faithful and kept his people's nose to the grindstone, and they got it done. And so they celebrate with joy. We see that right there in verse 16. It says they celebrate the dedication of this house of God with joy. There's a lot of joy circulating, and don't let this passage, it might be kind of underwhelming, but there's many passages that sort of, when when the author writes this, is meant to invoke some other passages, meaningful passages through the history of the Israelites to really give you some depth, some understanding of how big this barbecue really is. And you see it, there's a tally, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs. It's a big old barbecue, and 12 rams on top of that. But as we look at this party, we have to see this is not your typical party. There is some serious depth. There's serious nuance to how the people of God are celebrating in this moment of time. And it does, it does, shows us two things. First of all, it shows us how these people get rooted back in their covenant relationship with God. This takes them back to their history as the people of Israel. Now, when, when the scripture, so far in this story of Ezra, the way that, that the author has been referring to them most often is, is just by calling them the Jews. 
Now, that, that kind of speaks to who they are, the Jews, it's, it's a, a nation, a people. But here in this passage, they're referred to in verse 16 as the people of Israel. And that's significant. That, that, that's invoking, invoking their covenant name, the name that God had made a covenant to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is Israel. They're being rooted in the historical covenant, the relationship that they have with God. And so it roots them in history and covenant relationship with God, but it also does something for us. It gives us a framework. It makes us examine what's going on here and sees that there's a framework here for us to live by as disciples of Jesus. We might not be roasting bulls and sheep and lambs and goats, but there's a framework for here to operate by as disciples of Christ. And so let us open up to Ezra chapter 6 this morning, and let's see what the Lord has for us, especially as we look at these three passages where we're going to focus. In Ezra 6, verses 16 through 18. I'm going to read them here. The Lord said, And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set up the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it was written in the book of Moses. Now, when we're looking at this passage, it's, it's clear. There's, there's a party, celebration. There's celebrating. There's joy. There, there's fanfare going on here. But a unique feature of this party is not just that they look back to the past and say, yes, we did it. We finally finished this building project. We've built the temple. Now, that, that's definitely in place where they're looking back and they're reflecting and they're celebrating this grace. But there is another aspect to this celebration where they're future-oriented. What they're celebrating here is not just the past, but this new beginning, this new era that is on the horizon where they are dedicating the temple for the work of the Lord. They are declaring this building that we've built with great stones and, and the cedars of Lebanon, this, this temple that we've built with all of the choice gold and silver and materials, this is a house devoted to the God of heaven and earth. It's not just, yes, this is built, but here's a new beginning. Here, here, here's a new era where this house of the Lord will be devoted to him. Now, what, what is happening here when they devote the temple goes beyond um, the common usage in our vocabulary of dedication. For example, you might say um, a screwdriver is dedicated to unscrewing things. Right? That, that's its primary usage. It's what you use a screwdriver for most often, but it can also be used to pry open lids. It can be used to break up ice, to prop open doors. There's, there's many different uses that, that a screwdriver can have in daily applications. Now, this kind of dedication that we see here in our passage goes beyond that. Yes, there is this, this primary usage, but there's also the idea of ex exclusivity going on here. That's just not the temple gets used for one thing, 
um, among many, but, but exclusively devoted as a house for God. This is God's house. No other idols, no other false gods can dwell here. This place, this temple has been consecrated. It's been set apart. It's been made holy. It's been made fit for unique and special, even sacred use. So this dedication of the temple is, is, is really significant. That the ultimate and singular priority, the ultimate and singular usage of this facility is for God to dwell. Now this is what made the temple in Jerusalem unique from the other temples that we saw in Samaria, their, their neighboring country. Um, we saw previously, I think this is chapters 3, where the Samaritans come and they have this hybrid sort of worship that in some ways they know the God of Israel and they have some kind of reverence for him, but they are steeped in other pagan ideologies. They're steeped in this other kind of religion, and so they have this mix and match of religion where a little this, a little that. But here in the Jewish temple, the, the, the temple in Jerusalem, this is fully devoted to the one true God. There cannot be one God among many. It is one God and there's not enough room for any other gods. They say, we have built this home for God, and it belongs to him alone. And this is where God will dwell among his people. Now, as we read this passage, it's relatively short. We've got thir three verses here speaking of the dedication and the celebration of what's going on. But, but the author of Ezra would know that the reader of this passage should have previous circumstances that go back, that, that reflect this, or have a lot of similarity or parallels here, would be kind of building out uh, the rest of the structure, be filling in the gaps, if you will. And other places where we see this kind of consecration, this dedication, the first place is in Exodus 40, where after wandering in the wilderness, or during the wandering in the wilderness, Moses and the people of God build a tabernacle, a dwelling place where, where God is placed right in the center of the people of Israel, that all of the camps, all of the tribes are set up around them. The, the temple was the, basically the gravitational pull of the people of Israel, and that's where God dwelt, and God's glory would rest there, and when it moved, they would move the temple, and the people of God would move with him. And we see in Exodus 40, there's this consecration. They built this, this tabernacle. There's the offering of sacrifices. And they make this dedication. And then again in, in 1 Kings 8, when Solomon builds a permanent temple, the temple that David was given the blueprints for, Solomon, his son, comes up and he builds a temple and he builds it and he dedicates it to the Lord in a similar fashion, follows, follows all of the details, all of the blueprints, and they offer sacrifices to the Lord. They devote it to God. And when they do that, God moves in. The glory of God, the presence of God is it manifests in this glory cloud where you can visibly see it's represented the presence of God coming and dwelling upon the tabernacle or the temple. And so this, this, these previous instances are meant to be in the back of the mind as we read through Ezra chapter 6. 
And when you think through those things and you're reading Ezra chapter 6, you're expecting that a glory cloud would be somewhere present. Right, that the presence of the Lord would be made manifest, that the people would know for certain that God is there. But it's nowhere to be found. What happened? Where is God? Now, this is a feeling that, that we can often have in our life. It's like, I'm doing all the right things. You know, we offer the sacrifices. We, we built the temple. God, where are you? I feel like I can't see you. I can't feel... It would be easy for them to sense that and wonder, did God, did God find a better home? Did he find a, a place that is more fit for his dwelling, for him to abide? Now, it would be easy for us to slip into this despondence, especially if you're situated in Ezra chapter 6, and you're wondering, okay, where's this cloud at? But according to the prophets, who had a great deal to do with the completion of the temple, we're told that in verse 14, the ones who kept on pro poking and prodding God's people along in the work, one of the things, one of the assurances, one of the things that they proclaimed was that God was there with them. Haggai chapter 2 verse 4, in the midst of building, in the midst of the construction, God says to them, take courage, take heart, be courageous, work hard, for I am with you. See, it wasn't that God had departed from them. It wasn't that God had separated from them, that God had abandoned them. God was there in the midst of them even before the temple was done. In Ezra chapter 5, verse 5, we see the eye of God is upon them. Like that, it's like God is present. He sees, he knows, he's, he's right there in their midst. Zechariah 1.3, the beginning of, of the prophet of Zechariah speaking out saying, return to me and I will return to you. All of these promises deal with God being there with his people amidst them. And so it's even, even though there's no glory cloud, even though there's no visual representation of God's presence, he assures his people, I am with you. Not only that, but God gives a promise. In Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, he gives a promise to his people that there's a greater glory that is to come. There's a greater sense of presence that is yet to come. He says this, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of the nation shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The later glory, latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. There is a promise of greater glory, a greater sense of God's presence amongst his people. And while that might be pointing in the short future for the people of Israel right there where God would be there in the midst of them. As Christians, it points us forward to the new heavens and new earth 
where earth and heaven come one and it becomes the dwelling place for God and his people. That is the greater kind of glory where all of the gifts, all of the blessings, all of the riches of the nations get brought into this dwelling place where God is. And the presence of God will be undeniably real. Faith will become sight. Now, this is a promise that the people of God had in the midst of this, in the the midst of not having that visual representation. Now, as we look and reflect on Exodus 40 with the the dwelling of the Lord in the tabernacle and 1 Kings 8, where uh, in Solomon's temple, the Lord rests and dwells upon that place, there is another more recent event that's meant to sort of fill out the gaps even more. And this happens in 2 Chronicles chapter 29. This is coming off a season where the people of God have veered away from him. There's been a a line of unfaithful kings and and, and the the Levites and those who are meant to be uh, the, the leaders of worship among the people of Israel neglected their jobs. The people of God had fallen away. The temple had fallen into disrepair. It had been neglected. It had been overrun by by branches and rodents, and it just wasn't great. It was not at all what it was meant to be. It was by no stretch of the imagination a place where you think, oh, yeah, this is where the God of heaven and earth would dwell. And God raises up a man named King Hezekiah who comes and restores the temple. And like Ezra... We see the parallels here, where like the story of Ezra, the people had fallen away and they got exiled into Babylonian captivity. And God raises up a godly man to spur on this rebuilding, this renewing project. And so he cleans up the temple. He removes all the uncleanliness. And what they mean by that is all of the false idols, all of the imposter gods that have crept their way into the place of worship of the one true God. And what Hezekiah does, he, he consecrates this place with offerings. He, he devotes it to God. He dedicates it to God with bulls and rams and lambs and goats. Does this sound familiar? What do we do? Sacrifice the animal on the altar, and they take the blood, and they sprinkle it over the altar, over the vessels that were used in the temple. This was the act of consecrating, of, of setting aside the temple for the worship of exclusive worship of God. And then they would take the animals that they had slain, they would burn them on the altar and make a pleasing aroma for God. And we, this, we see the exact same thing happening in Ezra. 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 sheep. The same thing is going on. The house of the Lord is being consecrated. They're they're sprinkling the blood throughout the places. They're devoting this house for the singular worship of God. And not only are they devoting the house to God, but they themselves are being devoted to God. There's not just this, this act of dedication to the house of the Lord, but the people of the Lord are being re-consecrated. They're being re-devoted. And we see this in what the 12 goats represent, the sin offering that is spoken of. It says 12 goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Now, the sin offering is important because it shows that the temple was not the only thing that was being dedicated that day, that the people of God were being dedicated. They were being consecrated and set apart themselves 
for the Lord, which can only happen through their own cleansing. To be cleansed, blood had to be shed. Now, this is a significant part of of the life of the people of Israel. This is a significant covenant renewal gesture that the people of God would would go in and participate in week in, day in, day out, week in, week out. There was a, a calendar year where there would be a special devotion of the sin offering. And this offering of sin was significant. This was crucial for maintaining covenant relationship with God. Now, this is all motivated by God's desire that he has. God's desire to have for himself a covenant people, a holy nation, a people that would reflect his divine attributes and his righteousness in the world, a people that would abide in relationship with him. God had that. God had that in Genesis 1, Genesis 2. That's what humanity was in the garden. Image bearers reflecting the glory of God as we ought to be walking in holiness, walking in righteousness. Until Genesis chapter three, where it all starts to unravel. It all falls apart. Adam and Eve break the one rule that God gave them. He said, don't eat this, don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't, don't do that. It was one simple rule. It's for if you do, you will surely die. And Adam and Eve being tempted by the serpent, they give in, they rebel against God's one commandment. And what they experience is a complete falling out of the bottom. They find themselves cut off from God. They didn't die physically in the moment, but there surely was a spiritual death that happened. They felt guilty Shamed, they, they hid themselves, they felt their nakedness, they hid from God. They found this, this strange relational strain take place between God, each other, and the creation. They've been cut off from God, the source of life, the source of light, the blessing, the one who, who creates and blesses. And now they find themselves in darkness. They find themselves dead in sin. They find themselves living under the curse of sin. Now, the thing about sin is that it doesn't stay compartmentalized. See, you can't take sin and isolate it to one compartment or one, one, one quadrant of your life. When sin gets in, it gets its grubby fingers on everything. It permeates, it, it pollutes, it seeps in and and contaminates all of life and all of creation. It's like an oil spill that kills marine life. It disrupts the entire ecosystem. And just like oil in a pelican's feathers, our sin builds up. It it hampers us from living as we ought to. It impairs us to the point where it heaps up guilt and shame and will slowly choke you out until there is a very literal death. That's why Paul says the wages of sin is death. Now, we might try to clean ourselves up. We might sense the griminess, the, the dirtiness, the, the, just the pollution of sin and say, I got to get my act together. 
you bust out the Dawn soap because that's, you know, that's their claim to fame on all those commercials, those little ducks getting washed up. Maybe there's a spiritual equivalent of that. I'll, I'll bust that out. I'll scrub myself down. But all of our attempts to clean ourselves up prove to be inadequate. There's no way to tip the scales. And if I did this much bad, well, I've, I've got to do that much more good. And, and just maybe the scales will be tipped out and God will think of me more, more you know, positively. We can't work it off. We find ourselves going and going. It's a futile attempt. It's just like Lady Macbeth where we're scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing and cry out, out damned spot. The blood is on her hands. She can't get it out. It's what it is like with stains of sin on our soul. They, they go too deep. They're embedded in us. Our hearts are polluted. Because our hearts are polluted, our life is polluted. Now, this, this bears significant implications on our ability to relate with God and to one another. See, sin interrupts the relationship that we were meant to have. This fellowship, this union that we have or meant to have with God gets cut off. It gets severed. This chasm gets placed between us. You see that exactly in how Adam and Eve go and hide. They're fearful of God. They know that they've done wrong. Their shame and their guilt drives them away from God and one another. They start pointing fingers. Relationship is strained. It is impossible for sinners to have relationship with God. That is unless God intervenes. That is unless God finds a way to take our sin and put it on someone or something else so that the consequences, the punishment of sin gets dealt with. God can't just sweep sin under the rug and say, oh, let bygones be bygones. No, that would compromise the justice of God. Sin, rebellion must be dealt with. And God gave the sin offering as a means to do this for his people. What would happen at the sin offering is the people would come together, and there, there's many different, you can go to Levi, uh, Leviticus 6, talks about the different kinds of offerings according to the law of Moses. But one of the things that would happen, whether it was an individual or together as a community, there would be this confession of sin. This, this sin offering would um, they, people would come together, they would confess their sins, put the hand, the priest would put their hands on the animal, and as if that sin got imputed upon that animal, got transferred from the guilty party to the innocent animal. And instead of that person dying and experiencing the punishment for their sin, which is death, the animal would take their place. The sin and the guilt would get pushed off onto that animal and it was through that sacrifice that people would be cleansed. Relationship with God would be restored. But there's also not just vertical implications, horizontal implications of this. There's, there's not just the forgiveness from God, but a forgiveness of God that translates into forgiving one another. Now, according to the law of Moses, the sin offering was meant to be done regularly as often as there was reason to give sacrifice for sin. But there would also be a special day of atonement. This Yom Kippur, it was a Jewish holiday that was a big day. 
that the people of God would come together to the temple. They would recount the grace and the provisions of God, seeing that this animal would take their place on the altar. But the thing that's going on right here in Ezra chapter 6, that thing, that festival had not been celebrated rightly in over 70 years. For 70 years, the guilt of the people was being heaped upon them. For 70 years, they were carrying around this spiritual baggage, this, this ickiness that sin cultivates in the life. They're backlogged with all kinds of sin and guilt and shame for the sins that they know they have done, for the sins of the fathers, and for the sins that they were unaware of that they had committed. For 70 years. Now, some of us, some of us, it's like, when you feel the guilt of sin hit, that weight feels heavy. And to go a day, to go three days, to go a week, to go a month, to go years with that sin just sitting and festering and weighing you down is unbearable. 70 years heaped up on them. So this day, they celebrate. This day, they are reminded of the grace and provision that God has made for his people in giving an animal sacrifice to take away their sins. And they bring one goat per tribe. They, they lay the sin or the goat on the altar. They slice its throat. The blood drenches out. And in, in this, they know that they are forgiven. That sin has been dealt with. Their sin placed upon that animal and they experience this great lift that comes from forgiveness. Now this is something they've been longing for. This, this is something, I, don't, I think we wrap our minds around how deeply these people longed to experience that lift of forgiveness that they were offered through the sacrifices that couldn't be done in those 70 years. Even so that the, the prophet Zechariah keeps speaking this prophetic word in Zechariah chapter three where he speaks of Joshua, who's, who's the high priest, standing in the place of people wearing these filthy garments contaminated by sin. And Zechariah prophesies how this high priest would be cleansed. He'd take off those filthy garments, put on new, clean clothes. And in a moment, in a day, 70 years worth of sin would be expunged from the people. All of it removed. You want to talk about like a millstone off from around your neck. That's the sort of liberation that they felt. But one of the things that we see here, that in being consecrated to the Lord, in this offering, the sin offering that's given to make them right, to, to pay for their sins, there's another side to this that they would no longer walk in sin as they formerly did, that they would walk anew. They would keep God's commandments. This is part of Zechariah's prophecy. They would abide in the way of the Lord, the new era. And as God's people, they would be recommissioned as all of life worshipers, people that are fully devoted to God. And when we talk about being devoted to God, I think Modern Christianity has a very low bar for what that means. You ask a Christian, are you devoted to God? Well, yeah, I go to Sunday worship as long as I don't have 
you know, scheduling conflict or, you know, or I'm not too tired or it's not daylight savings time or whatever it might be. I, I go to work, you know, that's my devotion. Like we, we isolate it to, to a couple hours a week. Or maybe, maybe it goes beyond that, a couple hours a week. Well, and I, I got small group on top of that. I go to mission community, so there's my devotion. The kind of devotion that God has in mind for his people is in all of life, every sphere, every compartment, every quadrant of your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ lived in honor of the glory of him. That in all things we would walk in his ways. In all things we would keep his commandments. And here's what happens. When you experience the great lift of the forgiveness of sins, when you experience this recommittal of self to the work and the life of the Lord, spiritual renewal unfolds before us. This is what we see. We see revival breaking out amongst God's people. Now, it might not be so obvious here in Ezra chapter 6. It just makes a little bit of reference of celebrating and joy, a couple of things here and there. But then, again, this is why we need 2 Chronicles chapter 29 to fill in the gaps. Because the author is invoking all of this stuff that's going on in 2 Chronicles and saying, the same thing is going on here in Ezra chapter 6. Let me take you there. 2 Chronicles 29, it should be up on the screen, verses 27 through 30. Going back to Hezekiah and his days of, of, of uh, renewal in the temple. Then Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offering be offered on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also. And the trumpets, accompanied by the instruments of King David, king of Israel, the whole assembly worshipped. And the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. This is a long time. This is a long celebration. This isn't just an hour on a Sunday morning. When the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshiped. And Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness and they bowed down and worshiped. This is Christian celebration. This is what's going on in Ezra chapter 6. But again, let me tie this back. All of this loud, booming sound, the trumpets blaring, the temple, God dwelling with his people, this is meant to remind God's people of Mount Sinai where God was manifest, where the glory of the Lord was there. They saw him. It was undeniable. And the fear of the Lord bubbled up in him. The, the reverence for the Lord increased, and they celebrated This is what's going on in Ezra 6. This is joyful celebration. This is Christian worship. Now, if this is how they celebrate under the, the, the old covenant and under this, this temporary pardon of sin, because once they offer one animal, it's not long before they go, gotta go and offer another one and then another one and then another one. There's this continual flow of offering sacrifices. The temple was a bloody spot, stinky and bloody If this is how they celebrate under the old covenant, how much more ought we celebrate under the new covenant? Where we have this once and for all sacrifice that cleanses us of all, all sin, all past, 
present, and future sin. It's all laid upon Jesus. He was the sacrificial lamb. He took it upon himself and was nailed to the cross. And it's by his blood that we find forgiveness. It's where we find cleansing. There's an old hymn, There's, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. As sinners plunge beneath the flood, loose all the guilty stains. Jesus' blood cleanses his people once for all. This is what the author of Hebrews speaks of in chapter 10. He says, and by that we have been sanctified or consecrated through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now listen to this. Here's the end of the sacrifices. And every priest stands daily at a service, right? So he's speaking to this ongoing need for animal sacrifices, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. It's just meant to be a placeholder. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I have made with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws upon their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Jesus comes as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And anyone who clings to him, anyone who puts his, their trust in him will be sanctified. You will be justified, made right before God. You will be able to relate to your heavenly Father as you are meant to do through the blood of the perfect Son. And we're told that as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another. See, the relational aspects of redemption are working themselves out through the blood of Christ. See, it's not just that I, I know that Jesus paid for my sin, that, that I know the freedom from guilt and shame and all the weight and baggage that my shame heats up and the accusations of the devil that I'm not good enough, that I fail too much, that I'm, I'm not what I was meant to be, Jesus lifts those. He says, I've got you. I made a way. I paid for every single one of those. And so you experience this lift and new connection to the Father through Christ. But then we see this work out to the community. Not only do I experience the freedom of my own sin, but now I see the sins of others through the redemptive work of Jesus. Or, or maybe I have been sinned against. Maybe I've been hurt. Maybe, maybe I'm the victim of other people's sin. But I see that Jesus' blood was shed to make all things right. He, he died for the sins of others, not just mine. Which enables us to forgive freely as we have been forgiven in Christ. To not be stingy with forgiveness to not be withholding. And as this works out, as, as we live in the freedom of Christ, 
This is what makes the church a unique people, a holy nation, a distinct, beautiful congregation. It's, it's when we become an ecosystem of God's grace. And every time we gather on Sunday mornings, every time we get together in our mission communities, every time we sit around the table with our family, it should feel like a celebration. It should feel like a party. Christians have more reason to celebrate than any other human on the face of the earth, any other people in our city. And this is not a gimmicky, this is not a phony baloney kind of celebration. Put a smile on and we'll get through it. But this is the kind of rejoicing that gives you a buoyancy in the midst of suffering. It gives you this profound heartfelt rejoicing that when we look at the saints who have come before us, the, one, the martyrs, those who have clung to Christ, even through the greatest hardship, that we can too follow in their footsteps and rejoice in the midst of sorrow, to celebrate in the midst of difficulty and turmoil. When we come together on Sunday mornings, we're acknowledging that we are not like God. We're acknowledging that we have been unfaithful this week. We have stepped away from the calling of walking in righteousness, of living our entire life devoted to the Lord. We have walked away in sin, but God has not walked away from us. God has been faithful in the midst of our unfaithfulness. The gospel reminds us that he cleanses us. He forgives us through the blood of Jesus Christ. All we must do is cling to him, and it's available every moment, every minute you feel that sense of guilt and shame swell up in your heart. Run to the cross. Run to the cross. Jesus has everything that you need. And when we stand in the promise, when we stand in the certainty of the cross, we stand in the certainty that God is near us. When Jesus was crucified, the, temple was, the, the curtain of the temple was torn. The presence of God was not just limited to the Holy of Holies, but it went everywhere. It made its dwelling place. The, the presence of God made its dwelling place in the church both corporately as we gather together to worship, but as individually, that our hearts are a house for the Lord, tabernacle, Lord is dwelling in us, which means that God has not left you, he has not forsaken you, God is nearer to you than your next breath. And in his presence, you find life. In his presence, you find forgiveness. In, your, in his presence, you find blessing. Not only that, God is working powerfully in you. He's making you fit for the service of God. Just as he's speaking of, of the Levites being devoted, being consecrated to the work of the ministry in the temple, every Christian is made useful to the Lord, made fit for service. This is the priesthood of all believers that Ephesians 4 speaks of, that we are called to be a living sacrifice, that our lives meant to be lived in devotion to the Lord. And when this happens, spiritual renewal takes place. 
There's this, there's this continual loop, a great kind of feedback loop of remembering the gospel, experiencing forgiveness, rejoicing in Christ, and going and serving, and just does this continual thing. Because when we go to serve on behalf of the Lord, what happens, we eventually find that we are inadequate to do that in ourselves, and we fail. We need forgiveness. This is the Christian life, this constant remembrance of God's faithful to the, to faithfulness to us in the midst of our unfaithfulness. So we celebrate. Christians celebrate the work of Jesus, and we dedicate ourselves to him totally. We pour ourselves out to God because Jesus has already totally poured himself out for us. And the more that we understand this, the more that we revel in the gospel, the more that we tap into the blessing and freedom of forgiveness, the more that we, we bask in the grace of God, the more spiritual revival takes place the more effective we become in the service of the Lord. This morning, part of our celebration is coming to the Lord's table. Not only does this acknowledge how we've been restored to God, that Christ's body was broken, his blood was shed for us. This is a family meal. Paul talks about if, if, if you have sin against your brother, you need to go and deal with that sin before you come and take the meal. Because this is the kind of reconciliation, this is the kind of the writing and redemption that God brings about through the gospel. Vertical, horizontal, and ecosystem of grace. This is a remembrance that the Lord has made every provision that we need to be freed from our sin, to be made right, and to walk in righteousness before the Lord. Not only is it a reminder of what Christ has done, his sacrifice, his once-for-all sacrifice, this meal is a means of grace for Christians. There is a spiritual power here. There is a mystery here of how God empowers his people to go about the mission that he has called us to. And so, brothers and sisters, let us tap into this. Let us receive this gift. First, receive the forgiveness of the Lord and see how this is a meal that sets us apart for God's service in all matters of life. Father, we thank you for your radical provision in Christ Jesus. No longer are we dependent upon sheep and goats and bulls to give us the, the momentary relief from our sins, but you, Christ, have been the once and for all sacrifice. That your body was broken, you, you did not even, you were so willing to make this happen that your own life you would give up. God, help us to, to reciprocate with the passion that you carried to the cross be mirrored and reflected in our life, our, our passion for you, our passion for worshiping you, for, for having the singular devotion, the singular focus of our worship. I pray, Lord, that you would uproot all of the false idols in our hearts. Make us people who worship you wholeheartedly. Make us people devoted to you in service, that you would continue building what you've begun here, the apostles and the saints who have come before us. The, the glory and the name of Christ would be high above all others. Pray that in Jesus' name.